I am fully aware that circumstances vary widely in different cases, and none of us is always consistent, despite the best intentions. With the issue clearly stated, is the Bible infallible, I go on to examine the evidences, put forth the arguments, illustrate the opinions by specific examples, and endeavor to make the case as impregnable as possible in a finite world in which the most passionate heart and the most enlightened intellect sees through the glass but darkly. Page 28, Chapter 2 Inerrancy, a Doctrine of Scripture In Chapter 1 we discussed the purpose of this book. Now I must state more specifically what is meant by the subject under discussion, Biblical Inerrancy. It also will help to say what is not meant by the word inerrant as well as what is meant. But inerrancy does not stand in isolation from other important words. Key words intimately connected with biblical inerrancy include the terms revelation, inspiration, illumination, authority, and interpretation. Natural and Special Revelation The Christian faith originates in revelation. Had God chosen not to reveal himself, man could never have known him. And man can never know more about God than God chooses to disclose. God is incomprehensible, so that if man were to know God in his totality, man himself would have to be greater than God. Whatever knowledge of God is available exists solely because God has chosen to make it known. This is his self-revelation. Revelation comes to man in two forms, natural revelation and supernatural revelation, also called general revelation and special revelation. Natural or general revelation comes to man through nature, including man himself. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 19 verse 1 Paul says that his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Romans 1 verse 20 Natural or general revelation is rooted in creation and in the ordinary relationship of God to man. But natural or general revelation is deficient in itself. Nature has ceased to be an obvious or perspicuous, that is, clear or plain, revelation of God, although it may have been so before sin entered the human race. Even if it were obvious now, man, because of sin, has been so blinded that he cannot read the divine script in nature. General revelation does not afford man the reliable knowledge of God and spiritual things that he needs for salvation. It is therefore inadequate as a foundation for the Christian faith. However, there is enough light in general revelation so that man is left without excuse if he does not live up to the light he has. The Christian, because he is a Christian and has a converted mind, not a reprobate mind, understands general revelation better through the word of God and thus he is able to see God's finger in nature and in history. God also has disclosed himself in special revelation. He has done so in at least three different ways through theophanies, direct communications, and miracles. Theophanies are appearances of God himself. He is spoken of as dwelling between the cherubim. Psalms 80 verse 1 and 99 verse 1 
He appeared in fire and clouds and smoke. Genesis 15 verse 17, Exodus 3 verse 2, chapter 19 verse 9 and verse 16, Exodus chapter 33 verse 9, Psalms chapter 78 verse 14, and chapter 99 verse 7. He appeared in stormy winds, Job 38 verse 1, chapter 40 verse 6, and Psalm 18 verses 10 to 16. He appeared as the angel of the Lord, not as a created angel. In some instances, the angel of the Lord is distinguished from God. See Exodus 23 verses 20 to 23, Isaiah 63 verses 8 and 9. But he is also identified with God in such verses as Genesis 16:13, chapter 31 verse 11 and verse 13, and chapter 32 verse 28. Theophany reached its highest point in the incarnation in which Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. See Colossians 1.19 and chapter 2 verse 9. God disclosed himself a second way through direct communications. In doing so, he made his thoughts and will known to men. Sometimes it was through an audible voice. Genesis 2 verse 16 chapter 3 verses 8 to 19, chapter 4, verses 6 to 15, chapter 9, verses 1 and 8 and 12, chapter 32, verse 26, Exodus 19, verse 9, Deuteronomy 5, verse 4 and 5, and 1 Samuel 3, 4. He communicated through the Lot and through the Urim and Thummim. Numbers 27, verse 21, Deuteronomy 33, verse 8, 1 Chronicles 24 verses 5 to 32 and Nehemiah 11 verse 1. He worked through dreams. Numbers 12 verse 6, Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 to 6, 1 Samuel 28 verse 6, Joel 2:28. He communicated through visions. Isaiah 6 verse 21, Ezekiel chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 8 to 11. Daniel chapter 1 verse 17, chapter 2 verse 19, and chapters 7 through 10. And lastly, God has communicated his thoughts and will to men through the Holy Spirit, especially in the New Testament. Mark 13:11, Luke 12:12, 12, 12, John 14:17, and chapter 15 verse 26, chapter 16 verse 13, chapter 20 verse 22 and Acts 6, verse 10, and chapter 8, verse 29. God disclosed himself a third way through miracles. These showed the special power of God and his presence. They often were used to symbolize spiritual truth. They confirm the words of prophecy and point to the new order God is establishing. The greatest of the miracles is the incarnation. See here Acts chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Revelation, historical and inscripturated. Revelation, as I have thus far spoken of it, is redemptive. It is a revelation of word and fact, and it is historical. It is intended to redeem lost men and to reveal the plan of salvation. It is the revelation of God in the law, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles, the history of Israel.
All of this happened in history over many centuries. It was progressive and unfolding in character, dim at first, then gradually increasing in light until the fullness of the revelation had come. This revelation of God of which I have been speaking has become inscripturated. It has come down to us in written form. Thus there are two words, the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, and the Word of God written, the Bible. It is the Word of God written that reveals the Word of God incarnate to men. The Bible, then, is the Word of God, and it is of this Word we now speak. When we say the Bible is the Word of God, it makes no difference whether the writers of Scripture gain their information by direct revelation from God, as in the case of the book of the Revelation, or whether they researched matters as Luke did, or whether they got their knowledge from existent records and sources, or even by word of mouth. The question we must ask is whether what they wrote, wherever they may have secured their knowledge, can be trusted. This brings us to the doctrine of inspiration, which is clearly taught in the Bible itself. Inspiration Defined Inspiration may be defined as the inward work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of chosen men who then wrote the scriptures so that God got written what he wanted. The Bible in all of its parts constitutes the written word of God to man. This word is free from all error in its original autographs, of which more will be said in a moment. It is wholly trustworthy in matters of history and doctrine. However limited may have been their knowledge, and however much they may have erred when they were not writing sacred scriptures, the authors of scripture, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, were preserved from making factual, historical, scientific, or other errors. The Bible does not purport to be a textbook of history, science, or mathematics, yet when the writers of scripture spoke of matters embraced in these disciplines, they did not indict error. They wrote what was true. The very nature of inspiration renders the Bible infallible, which means that it cannot deceive us. It is inerrant in that it is not false, mistaken, or defective. Inspiration extends to all parts of the written word of God, and it includes the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit even in the selection of the words of Scripture. Moreover, the Bible was written by human and divine agencies, that is, it was the product of God and chosen men. The authors of Scripture retained their own styles of writing, and the Holy Spirit, operating within this human context, so superintended the writing of the Word of God that the end product was God's. Just as Jesus had a human and a divine nature, one of which was truly human and the other truly divine, so the written Word of God is a product that bears the marks of what is truly human and truly divine. Inspiration involved infallibility from start to finish. God the Holy Spirit by nature cannot lie or be the author of untruth. If the scripture is inspired at all, it must be infallible. If any part of it is not infallible, then that part cannot be inspired. If inspiration allows for the possibility of error, then inspiration ceases to be inspiration. Now no one will assert that the human authors of Scripture were infallible men, but believers in infallibility do say that fallible men were made infallible with respect to Scripture they indicted. They were kept from error by the Holy Spirit. 
However, there are those who argue that this refers only to salvatory matters. The late John Murray has pinpointed the basic problem connected with this viewpoint. He argued the case this way. If human fallibility precludes an infallible scripture, then by resistless logic it must be maintained that we cannot have any scripture that is infallible and inerrant. All of scripture comes to us through human instrumentality. If such instrumentality involves fallibility, then such fallibility must attach to the whole of scripture. If infallibility can attach to the spiritual truth enunciated by the biblical writers, then it is obvious that some extraordinary divine influence must have intervened and become so operative so as to prevent human fallibility from leaving its mark upon the truth expressed. If divine influence could thus intrude itself at certain points, why should not the same preserving power exercise itself at every point in the writing of Scripture? End of quote. Need we add the obvious? If Scripture itself professes to be inerrant only with respect to revelational or salvatory truth, where is the evidence for this to be found? Not in Scripture. For when the Word of God speaks of its trustworthiness, at no point does it include any limitation, nor does it indicate that some parts of Scripture are thus to be trusted and other parts are not. If there is any doctrine of infallibility based upon the biblical data, it must include all of Scripture or none of it. Those who stumble over inerrancy do so because of the supposed errors they find in the phenomena of Scripture, by which they mean those parts that can be verified. Here the late Edward John Carnell makes an important point. He says, B.B. Warfield clearly perceived that a Christian has no more right to construct a doctrine of biblical authority out of deference to the presumed inductive difficulties in the Bible than he has to construct a doctrine of salvation out of deference to the actual difficulties which arise whenever one tries to discover the hidden logic in such events as a. the Son of God's assumption of human nature or b. the Son of God's offering up of his human nature as a vicarious atonement for sin. This means that whether we happen to like it or not, we are closed up to the teaching of the Bible for our information about all doctrines in the Christian faith, and this includes the doctrine of the Bible's view of itself. We are free to reject the doctrine of the Bible's view of itself, of course, but if we do so, we are demolishing the procedure by which we determine the substance of any Christian doctrine. If we pick and choose what we prefer to believe rather than what is biblically taught, we merely exhibit once again a logical and existential fallacy of trying to have our cake and our penny too. End of quote. Wrong Notions of Inspiration There are some notions of what inspiration is that must be adjudged as constituting false or misleading opinions. Perhaps the most widely held view entertained by those who object to the definition just proposed regards the writers as mere secretaries, penmen of God who wrote down words that were dictated to them by the Holy Spirit. Not even the persistent and almost violent repudiation of the dictation theory by those of us who believe in inerrancy seems to make any difference. This libel surfaces over and over again. 
Let it be said succinctly that I do not know any scholar who believes in biblical inerrancy who holds that the scriptures were received by dictation. Those who believe in inerrancy acknowledge that the whole Bible was written by man and they make no effort whatever to obscure this fact any more than they would deny the true humanity of Jesus. What believers in inerrancy are saying is that the Holy Spirit was also at work in the minds and hearts of the writers. These writers were guided in what they wrote so that they were preserved from error even as they communicated truth. Inspiration is taken by some to mean that the thoughts of the writers but not the words were inspired. The idea that inspiration extends to the words, verbal inspiration, as well as to the thoughts, appears obnoxious to their viewpoint. But thoughts, when committed to writing, must be put into words. And if the words are congruent with the ideas, the words no less than the thoughts take on great importance. Words have specific meanings. To suppose that thoughts are inspired, but the words that express them are not, is to do violence even to the thoughts. This is apparent particularly in those areas of scripture in which the writers profess to be speaking the very words of God. One cannot limit inspiration to thoughts, for if the words are not inspired, they will not properly convey the thoughts, and if they properly convey the thoughts, then they must be no less inspired than the thoughts. Some use the term inspiration to mean genius of a higher order. The writers of the Bible were no more inspired than Milton, Mohammed, Shakespeare, Confucius, and other great writers. Still others say that all Christians of every age are just as inspired as the Apostle Paul, so that there is no reason why another Bible could not be written today. Others hold to a view of partial inspiration, saying that the Bible contains the Word of God. This leaves man in the position of having to determine what is, and what is not the word of God. Emil Brunner says that what speaks to him is the word of God, and what does not speak to him is not the word of God. In addition to the erroneous views of inspiration, there are those who confuse inspiration and illumination. By illumination we mean the inworking power of the Holy Spirit in the life of an individual by which he is able to comprehend what the scriptures say. Indeed, the Bible is objective truth whether a person believes it or not, or whether he understands it or fails to understand it. But the scripture itself teaches that man, unaided by the Holy Spirit, will not understand it. It is spiritually discerned, and this ability to discern what scripture means cannot be attained without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Inspiration taught in scripture I have stated what the doctrine of inspiration means. The question that now arises is, whence does this idea of inspiration come? It is a doctrine taught in scripture, just as the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit are taught in scripture. Certainly no one should be asked to believe anything that scripture does not teach. Martin Luther appealed to this idea in his struggle against Rome. He offered to recant his opinions if his opponents could show him from scripture that he was wrong. The most conclusive claim for inspiration comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17. 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Greek word for inspired is theophanoustos. Literally, this word means God-spirated or God-breathed out. It means that God indeed is the author of Scripture and Scripture is the product of His creative breath. The emphasis is not on inspired writers as much as it is on inspired Scripture. Scripture is breathed out. This is not to suggest that the Holy Spirit did not move on the writers themselves, but that the writers produced a product which, while it was their own, was also the word of the living God. Of course there is a mystery connected with a product that is the result of the confluence of the human and the divine. But it is a mystery only because it is exceptional, not normative, and does not happen frequently. The virgin birth of Christ has the same mysterious element in it. A baby was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He was both human and divine. It also is true of the two natures of Christ in one person. He had a human nature and a divine nature. Thus there is nothing strange in the fact that the scripture should bear the marks of both the human and the divine. And it is no more strange that the product, scripture, should be free from error than that the human Jesus born of the Virgin Mary should be free from original sin. A second biblical attestation for inspiration comes from 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What is interesting here is that Peter claims that the prophetic word did not come from human impulse. It came from God himself. And it was the Holy Spirit who moved on the hearts and minds of men to accomplish this purpose. Men were the divine instruments. Scripture did not come down from heaven. God used human instrumentalities to accomplish the divine purpose. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he made it clear that what they received and accepted was more than the mere words of men. It was the word of God. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 In 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul states, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. Paul claimed that what he said had come to him from God by revelation. He wanted the Corinthians to recognize that his words were not simply the words of a man, although they were communicated through human language and appeared in his style of speech. They were from God himself. In Galatians 1 verses 11 and 12, Paul claims that the gospel he preached was not received from men. It came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There are other reasons for believing in the infallibility of Scripture. The writers of the Old Testament professed more than 2,000 times that the words they wrote were given them directly from God. The phrase, Thus saith the Lord, or one comparable to it, appears frequently. The pragmatic test by which we are challenged to prove the Scriptures in experience vindicates the claim of infallibility. Fulfill prophecy adds to the case. 
several scores of Old Testament prophecies relating to the life of Christ were fulfilled literally in the New Testament age. One of the greatest of the Old Testament prophecies foretold the disappora of the Jews because of their sins, with the promise of the regathering of Israel in the latter days. Who can doubt that the return of the Jew to Palestine, even though in unbelief, is anything other than a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? Archaeology also has verified the accuracy of the Bible. The spades of a thousand diggers over the centuries have not discredited the truth of Scripture, nor has the turned-over earth proven the Bible to be untrue. The Autographs of Scripture Most evangelical writers, and indeed many of the doctrinal statements that support inerrancy, speak of it in connection with the autographs, that is, the original scriptures. No one claims that the autographs exist, and certain questions must be addressed as a result of this. No doubt God did not intend for the autographs to be preserved. They would have been accorded a treatment similar to that given to the Grameth, the sacred scriptures of Sikhism. That writing is virtually worshipped and is kept encased in such a way as to place the emphasis on the book rather than on the God who lies behind it. Idolatry is hardly new, and we may be sure that the possession of the original books of Scripture would have been an incipient temptation to idolatrous worship. God did not shield Scripture when it became a part of history. Moreover, he did not shield Adam and Eve in the garden so as to make it impossible for them to disobey their Creator. Nor did he shield his son Jesus from the possibility of sin in his humanity. In the history of the Christian church it has been carefully stated that Jesus in his deity was not able to sin and that Jesus in his humanity was not able to sin. He did not sin in his humanity because he always chose to do the right. He did not sin in his deity because deity cannot sin. Nor did God choose to preserve the mercy seat that was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. It has disappeared. But in the providential care of God, he has preserved the scriptures for us so that they have remained unadulterated, by which we mean free from error. Any student of lower criticism admits that there have been copious mistakes made by those who diligently sought to reproduce the books of the Bible by hand. But a copious mistake is something entirely different from an error in scripture. A misspelled or a misplaced word is a far cry from error by which is meant a misstatement or something that is contrary to fact. Nor do evangelicals run away from the Old Testament problem due to the existence of the consonantal and the Masoretic texts. The consonantal text of the Old Testament used only consonants, no vowels. The Masoretic text supplied the vowel points. Anyone knows that it is possible to misread some words when the vowels are missing, and centuries have elapsed since the time the original material was written. But this sort of problem does not mean there are errors in Scripture. Furthermore, it has always been acknowledged that Hebrew numbers are a problem because the differences between the Hebrew words for a hundred and a thousand are so slight that a much-handled manuscript could be misread. It is hardly novel to say that lower criticism has worked through the thousands of manuscripts of the Bible that are available and in the reconstruction of the text 
scholars have produced a product that can be said to be the word of God. Textual problems today in no way make the doctrine of biblical inerrancy impossible. It must be remembered, too, that those who scoff at the inerrancy of the autographs because they cannot be produced for examination have no better case arguing for the errancy of texts they cannot produce either. At the worst, it is a standoff. I add one further word about the autographs of Scripture and the copies we now have. Anyone who has doubts about the accuracy of the Scriptures that have come down to us by transmission through copyists is misinformed. We can say honestly that the Bible we have today is the Word of God. This is not to deny the existence of textual problems, as we have already said, but the textual problems are minimal. Thus it is that one of the world's foremost New Testament scholars, F.F. F. Bruce, has this to say in response to those who claim that infallibility is void because we do not have the original documents, and because of variant readings we cannot get back to them. He says, The variant readings about which any doubt remains affect no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. End of quote. Therefore, the variant readings offer no embarrassment to inerrancy advocates, for they do not impinge on the question at the point of the real tension. The places where the chief critics of inerrancy lay their emphasis are, for the most part, places where there are no textual problems, but where the claim in favor of errancy must be determined wholly apart from variant readings. Of this more shall be said later. Interpreting Scripture Those who advocate inerrancy take the Bible in its plain and obvious sense. The charge that they are wooden-headed literalists show the bias of those who make the charge. All that is meant by saying one takes the Bible literally is that one believes what it purports to say. This means that figures of speech are regarded as figures of speech. No evangelical takes figures of speech literally, Nor does any evangelical suppose that when Jesus said, I am the door, he meant he was a literal door. The scriptures use phenomenological language as we all do. To say that the sun rises and sets is illustrative of this device. To claim from its use in scripture that the ancients who wrote this were saying the sun revolves around the earth is nonsense. We who are supposed to know so much more than the ancients still use the same kind of language, and no one in his right mind would conclude that we teach that the sun revolves around the earth. Some people still believe the earth is flat, but to say that the Bible affirms this mistaken notion is hardly true. In Isaiah 40:22, the scripture speaks of the God who sits above the circle of the earth. That should be plain enough even for the skeptic. In Job 38, verse 7, the morning stars are said to sing together. That sounds far-fetched, and it has even been thought of as figurative language, but scientists now tell us that in the air there is music that comes from the stars. Another gross distortion of the evangelical view of biblical inerrancy is one that supposes everything in the Bible is true. This is not the case. There are statements in the Bible that are false. All the Bible does, for example, in the case of Satan, is to report what Satan actually said. Whether what he said was true or false is another matter. Christ stated that the devil is a liar. 
and we know from his words recorded in scripture that he lied again and again. There are other incidents of a similar kind, as in Acts, where Stephen is supposed to have made a misstatement about the number of Israelites who went down to Egypt. But this too, like so many of the claims of error in the Bible, can be explained satisfactorily. Furthermore, some men who ought to know better think that belief in an infallible scripture carries with it the idea that all scripture is of the same value. To say that all scripture is inspired and that all is infallible does not mean that all scripture has the same weight in teaching or that no part is superior to any other part. All scripture is profitable and all parts of it afford us knowledge and insight into God's self-revelation. But the didactic books such as Romans and Galatians, that open up to us the great teachings about justification by faith are of more significance than some of the genealogical tables or the details of the history of the kings or some aspects of the journeys of the Apostle Paul. The teaching books are more important to us than some of the material contained in the apocalyptic books. The latter are surely important, but less so than some of the other parts of the Word of God. The Proverbs of Solomon do not rise to the level of the Gospel records. All of Scripture presents truth, but some truths are central, others peripheral. Some parts are of the first magnitude in the scale of values, and others of the second. Let no one imagine for a single moment that biblical infallibility connotes the idea that all Scripture is of the same level or degree of importance. The Authority of Scripture The Bible is authoritative. By this I mean that we are to believe what it teaches and to practice what it commands. It is the Christian's only rule of faith and life and all the opinions of men and women are to be tested against it. What contradicts it, we need not believe. For the problem areas for which we have no clear answer at the moment, we are to be content to wait until all the evidence is in. Apparent discrepancies are no more than that. Additional information in a thousand instances has proved that the Bible's critics were wrong. The authority of the Bible for man is viable only if the Bible itself is true. Destroy the trustworthiness of the Bible and its authority goes with it. Accept its truthfulness and authority becomes normative. To accept the notion of the authority of the Bible and at the same time declare in favor of errancy is to rest on shifting sand infallibility and authority stand or fall together. Hermeneutics and Scripture In our generation, an old element that has assumed significant proportions has come to negate the doctrine of biblical infallibility. I refer to the field of biblical interpretation more popularly thought of under the label of hermeneutics. This is defined as the science of interpretation. It is possible to destroy the idea of biblical infallibility neatly by providing interpretations of scripture at variance with the plain reading of the text. It can be accomplished also by consciously or unconsciously held a priori presuppositions that do the same thing. Several simple examples will make this clear. Take the virgin birth of Christ. The account of the virgin birth requires a belief in miracles in the supernatural. 
No one can accept the virgin birth without also being a supernaturalist. But there are numbers of people who are convinced that the miraculous cannot occur. Their interpretation of scripture rests on a presupposition that makes it impossible to believe in the virgin birth. For if the supernatural does not happen, the virgin birth could not have taken place. If one's basic presupposition is to accept the scriptures, then the supernatural and the virgin birth are no stumbling block. Perhaps the matter of hermeneutics can be summarized by a statement Harry Emerson Fosdick made some decades ago. He said, This, then, is the conclusion of the matter. It is impossible that a book written two or three thousand years ago should be used in the 20th century A.D. without having some of its forms of thought and speech translated into modern categories. When, therefore, a man says, I believe in the immortality of the soul, but not in the resurrection of the flesh. I believe in the victory of God on earth, but not in the physical return of Jesus. I believe in the reality of sin and evil, but not in the visitation of demons. I believe in the nearness and friendship of the Divine Spirit, but I do not think of that experience in terms of individual angels. Only superficial dogmatism can deny that the man believes in the Bible. End of quote. This quotation perfectly illustrates the hermeneutical problem. Falls Dick reinterprets what he admits the scriptures clearly teach. But he does so because his hermeneutical presupposition is that the thought forms of yesteryear tell us something the writers did not know then, but which we know now. He superimposes on scripture his own thought forms, assuming that they are correct and the thought forms of scripture incorrect. He ends up with interpretations that do violence to the Bible and in the process undermines its authority, not to say its infallibility. His views are not tested by scripture. Rather, they replace scripture, and in making this choice, his notions reverse the process so that his norms become the test for scripture. This is arrogant, to say the least. Having laid a foundation by stating the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, we must take the next step. Does this view of scripture, taken from scripture, have support in the history of the Christian church? Or is it some esoteric opinion that finds no acceptance in the church's history? So we will seek to determine what the view of the Christian church has been through the ages with respect to biblical inerrancy. Page 41, Chapter 3, Infallibility in the Church I have constructed a statement of what biblical infallibility means and have discussed the terms revelation, inspiration, illumination, authority, and interpretation. Now we must look at the church in history to see whether it has a. accepted and propagated a view of infallibility as I have defined it, b. entertained and promoted some other view, or c. accepted and supported diverse views. Early Church Controversies when we look at infallibility in church history, one fact stands out in sharp focus. The dogma of biblical inerrancy never was an acute issue in the church until the 19th and 20th centuries. The early church faced numerous controversies, none of which had to do with the question we are discussing here. Christology was an important issue in the early church. 
It had to do with the pre-incarnate and the incarnate Christ. The Arian controversy forced the church to decide whether Jesus was eternally subsistent and consubstantial with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Arians believed that there was a time when Jesus Christ was not. This made him a created being, however exalted above man he might be. The church agreed that Christ was eternal God and co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. The church had to grapple with the person and the nature or natures of the incarnate Christ. Did he have a human and a divine nature? If so, did these two natures exist side by side? If he had two natures, was he two persons or one person? Thus, Christological dilemma was settled by saying that Jesus had two natures, a human and a divine, that were not blended into one, nor were they to be confused with each other, but they existed side by side in the one person. The doctrine of man, anthropology, having to do with his nature, vexed the church also. It focused on the Pelagian-Augustinian duel that ended in favor of Augustine's view. Spiritually, man was dead. He was incapable of any act that would bring him into favor with God. He needed the grace of God through the new birth for spiritual life. The Pelagians taught that Adam's descendants did not inherit his guilt. Adam's sin injured only himself, not his posterity, and all men are born with the same freedom Adam had before the fall. Thus any man could fully keep the commandments of God if he willed to do so. Indeed, Coalesius declared that some men who lived before Christ were sinless. The semi-Pelagians adopted a middle view that man was neither dead nor unaffected by Adam's sin. Man's will had been impaired, but not to the extent that he was incapable of achieving salvation through grace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.